Today is August 15th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Naganago, Mikoche, Chase Tokom Aki, or Dekots Negotine, Siku. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed US Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gunai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22nd, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley, Chiniki, and Bearscaw Nations of the Stony Nations, and the Denny from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Metis, Inuit, status and non-status cross Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. As it will be Pride Month here in um, Calgary, I want to really emphasize the straight agenda and gendered violence was and is forced on these lands by Christian outsiders. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner in a so-called time of reconciliation. It's important land acknowledgements have meaning I encourage all people to introduce themselves with their acknowledgement of their ancestors, stories of displacement, and how you perceive your role as a treaty partner, a citizen of Canada, a refugee, or other land displacement so that we as Indigenous peoples know how safe you are to be around. Uh, if I don't know your, how to pronounce your local Indigenous nation's name, or maybe you won't say your pronouns, you won't say your story of origin, won't acknowledge stolen lands, won't acknowledge imposed economic oppression, or your role in reconciliation, I determine how safe you are to be around my family, my community, and myself. Understanding land acknowledgements and their importance is Indigenous 101, because it immediately addresses colonialism, dynamic oppressions, broken treaties, and lies taught today in Canadian schools nationally. That's why settlers and those that we <laughs> and those that call themselves Native Calgarians or whatever town you're from show me that you have no Indigenous 101 understanding. Uh, Jesse Winte's book on Reconciled chapters 13 and pages 180 to 181 explain all of this perfectly. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Great Bear Lake tribe in Treaty 11. My people wore rabbit skin, so it's been referred to the land as of the hair people. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Tinchotine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many big dog town, named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot Mokinstis as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. Through my father, I'm a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and Post status card which is a colonial construct by Canadian policies meant to divide Indigenous peoples' inherent rights. Indigenous Two-Spirit, or the Indigenous uh, 2S LGBTQ2 plus community, and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the Canadian socioeconomic ladder because of colonial trauma, imposed poverty, racism, gendered violence, and land theft. As a Dene woman who's attempted to run after joining harmful colonial parties meant to uh, spend money to be at expensive conventions, left my home to travel to those conventions just to vote on incomplete policies that still allow incarceration and denial of justice, denial of health services, racism, colonial trauma, and genocide of Indigenous and Black peoples. I have work to continue, reports to advocate for, and attempt to work within these systems meant to harm me and my community. I cannot have you know, a, a great weekend knowing my community is dying from certain drug policies and systems of imposed Christian-based drug policies of abstinence programming, private health care, and justice systems built on racism, land theft, and imposed British constructs. 
at continuing genocide on my peoples. I have so much more I would love to say about folks that are missing right now that um, are dealing with international laws now for trying to run away from a corrupt Canadian system. But I want you to continue to keep Dawn uh, Dumont Walker and her son Vinny Jansen in your prayers as they try to navigate this insanity. Um, I think of them today. I think of so many other people who have passed from these poor policies. And I hope we honor their lives. I hope you all see your role in the importance of stopping harm as a citizen and see your role in reconciliation. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot and Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce it in Satu Dene. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot and Dene elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or interpretations of the, in any of the broadcasts will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share my Red Road journey. I've been accused of not being kind while surviving genocide. Yet I give free book clubs, podcasts, and info on my social media, and as do so many other Indigenous people. At this point, it is willful to be ignorant on these issues. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd just love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or your questions. Also, giving a review helps on whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe, or you can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And if you want me to come to your business to talk about land acknowledgements or whatever Indigenous 101, I will. Um, so today, I am very honored to have a guest with me. Rob, would you like to introduce yourself in your way? Yes, certainly. Tansa, I'm a Westitch, Oki, Rob Hul Nitsika soon, Wapsusi Pitando Jinia. My name is Rob Hul. I come from the Swan River First Nation, which is in the northern of Alberta in Treaty Number Eight territory. Um, I am married into the Stony Nations in Treaty Number Seven. And uh, my wife has connections to the Blackfoot Nation as well. She is uh, connected to the Blood Tribe um, and the Fish Eater Clan. So my kids and, and her are connected there as well. So I had kind of covered the swath of Alberta. Um, today I'm coming to you from the traditional territory to come up to Swepnik, where uh, I am in Kamloops. I am uh, currently studying law, um, going into my second year now. And it's been an interesting journey, and I'm happy to be here to talk about uh, redwashing and uh, the problems that uh, the banks have. Oh, my goodness. I'm so grateful. Uh, so obviously, being in Alberta, all anybody cares about when it comes to politics is money, and that's why conservatives are so strong here. So that's why when I seen this, I uh, probably spit out my coffee and was so excited to talk to you about this. So for folks who may have missed uh, our retweeting, I'm going to put a link uh, for this here. It's a Yellowhead Institute special report on redwashing extraction, indigenous relations at uh, Canada's five big banks. And I love the art on it too. It's just fabulous. There's nothing I don't like about this. Um, I, I uh, got the Indigenomics book and it kind of breaks down a bit about some of the problems of the Indian Act and, and the economics of it. But that bigger picture is that we have a Western society that imposed this um, structure 
and purposely excluded us. And I think a report like this is exactly what people need to be reading. So do you want to talk about um, why you decided to create it? Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> so the work started. So I'm also a research fellow with the Yellowhead Institute. Uh, I've been so for a couple of years now. Um, and I, I write articles with them. Um, I do some research. I was one of the key researchers on the cashback report, which was released last year, which looked at our fiscal relationship with the government and governments of past. It explores Indian trust funds, it explores um, a lot of that financial kind of aspect of our relationship. Uh, it was the second report following up from Land Back. Um, and then I know that they're currently working on their third report, uh, Red Paper. So initially with that cashback research, I started looking at money figures, counts, started getting interested in knowing where the money was going, how it was moving around, how it was used to displace and dispossess indigenous people, how it was a very one-sided relationship, how there's a lot of uh, ambiguity and misunderstandings around trust relationships in Canada, especially with, the, with indigenous communities. So then that led to another conversation around, well, what about the current financial state? State. What about the current finances? What are what are the banks doing? We know that there are resource extraction projects happening, um, but how does that balance out with how the how the banks are working with communities and in communities, and whether or not there's a disparity there, and whether or not their investments uh, mirror what their their speaking points on, or or whether or not there's a, a little bit more work that they have to do. I really appreciate all of that background because I think of uh, pink washing for pride where, you know, their LGBTQ2 plus community is disproportionately uh, fired and let go on a regular basis. But then come pride in June, usually it's, you know, rainbows and uh, pride flags of uh, trans and all the other colors, but no real um, investment into their employees, uh, folks that are actually from that community. And um, one of my favorite parts when I was flip, flipping through this was um, on when you actually have this particular um, piece here, where you really show um, in and the, the check itself shows this. So for folks who are just listening um, on one of these pages, there's a beautiful diagram of how um, basically banks save reconciliation, but then you know, they'll take big photo ops with um, Indigenous folks for a couple of Indigenous causes and with some ridiculously small amount. And it says memo lip service. And that's exactly what I see. And especially here in Calgary, every single day, um, we get, you know, a small bit of sponsorship. We have to, first of all, submit ridiculous amounts of paperwork and budgets to people who don't have our interest at heart. And then we might get a small, ridiculously small amount of money from one of these institutions. And it just, the cycle continues and continues and continues. And of course, that's what we have to do in order to get any money. And I, I, I'm just so sick of it. I, we talk about reconciliation and treaty and equity. And we're not, I mean, honestly, at this point, because they've um, performed genocide on us and continue to do so, we should be getting half of any money. <laughs> that's that's what treaty is. That is what treaty actually is. And of course, it's been disproportionately never given to us in any capacity. Um, worse, we have so many myths to dispel. And thank God for books like, you know, 21 Things You Didn't Know About the Indian Act or in, Indigenomics to kind of dispel some of that stuff. 
Um, what are some uh, myths that you came across that you were like, this has to be mentioned in this report? So yeah, so there, there's a lot of um, public relations work that goes into how the banks work with communities. There's what we what we put forward was kind of a, and and not just from this kind of research experience from but from previous uh, work experience. I've worked with the the province for a time. Um, I worked for the city of Edmonton for a long time, and and did a lot of and with indigenous communities as well. Just looking at and how these relationships are built and structured. And what we put forward is kind of this top 10 list of how this relationship has evolved from being a treaty relationship equal footing to one of, of kind of if you meet these 10 things, then everyone will buy into what you're selling in terms of reconciliation. So it goes from the usual process and that you showed that image. It, it is creating an advisory group, doing more training, showcasing your workforce. Um, things like that, that that don't really change the on the ground effects and really just kind of gloss over the deep rooted problems we have in terms of systemic racism and things like that. Um, what we do is we go through and examine all of the five banks. We examine their kind of initiatives through this kind of top 10 lens to see what kind of work they're doing and whether or not it's meaningful and whether or not it makes a difference. And you see them showcasing, for instance, their workforce is 1% Indigenous or 1% BIPOC people. In a, in a country as diverse as Canada, um, with Indigenous people representing uh, increasing numbers and in places like Alberta representing 10% of the population and other things like that, um, I think it's really important that those employment figures don't mirror the reality in the community. And there's a real problem with, with how they're being sold. Um, and yeah, and I think it's it's also about the investment back to communities. Only, only one of the big five banks actually talked about how much business they're doing with Indigenous communities. And that was BMO. They spoke about $6.1 billion in business. But again, when you compare that to the hundreds of billions of dollars that they're they're investing in resource extraction, you compare that to um, whether or not clarification or whether or not that's Indigenous communities' own money that, that they're classifying as being investments or whether or not it's actual investments from the bank that needs more clarification because uh, there's a real lack of reporting around the finances and things like that. Um, but for the rest of these communities to not um, disclose any of that really leaves the question into, well, how much are they really investing in Indigenous communities? How much partnership and relationship building is going on and whether or not um, there needs to be more done. And I think we we challenge all of those kind of misnomers and misinformation. We touch a little bit on the equator principles and while they may be good, um, there's some definitely some initiative lacking there. We also talk a little bit about um, organizations like the CCAB and, and how their PAR certification process maybe is doing more harm than good and how there needs to be greater accountability mechanisms in place to make sure that these things are doing the work that they claim that they're doing. Yeah, I uh, really get a kick out of anyone who says they are implementing UNDRIP and TRC and then not doing like proper revenue sharing, but worse, pink washing um, back to red washing, that bigger picture of power dynamic. Um, there's no accountability for the power dynamic that currently is there. And I've tried to explain that to people that um, 
you know, folks that are needing money and such are, are forced to placate to the needs of the bank or whatever institution that they're trying to get that money from. And uh, there's never actually been equity. There's never been a chance for us as people to say no and it be respected and, and listened to. And if we do say no um, collectively, then they just disregard it and continue anyway. And then we're forced to protest it in some capacity. So um, this top 10 strategies for Indigenous relations employed by the five big banks, establishing an Indigenous advisory group, highlighting or increasing Indigenous awareness training. Um, so this weekend, I just was working with a very prominent uh, organization that I won't speak of, that to this day, it is 2022, and they still don't have any Indigenous protocols in place, and they didn't pay an elder upfront on the day that they asked her to come and do a prayer. So when we say increased <laughs> Indigenous awareness, awareness training, even that I've been so frustrated with the lack of uh, transparency from folks, and then comprehension skills, frankly, when it comes to listening to it anyway. Um, number three, reporting investment on Indigenous community, showcasing their Indigenous workforce, count, um, counting the Indigenous uh, account holders, partnering with an Indigenous organization. I think that's another conversation to have, like how many, a lot of folks identify an Indigenous organization and there may not even be Indigenous people on their board of directors. Like, and that happens so regularly. Um, engaging in a certification progress, uh, process, sorry, uh, referencing the TRC calls to action, committing to inter international regulation. Let's talk about UNDRIP and the amount of uh, energy companies that come out of Calgary that exploit and kill Indigenous people globally, right? And there's no mechanism for transparency and accountability on that. And yet that's where our money is going. Like there's, there's so much to unpack there. Um, publicly supporting Indigenous issues in, in the news. Yeah, these are these are really great um, pieces that you have here because, and, and sadly, a lot of companies won't even do this. So um, I really appreciate you writing this out and I hope that other people uh, see this and really get more into the meat of this. And um, I'll also link your other two reports, the land back and the cash back, because I think that that's important um, context as well to add to this. Um, you kind of spoke um, like Bank of Montreal is doing some things and that's that's good, don't get me wrong. Um, and then I seen this partnership with the Downey Windjack um, organization. Have you found there to be much transparency in that organization? Um, from their reporting, from their reporting, their partnership, I think they have a partnership with Scotiabank on creating Downey Windjack spaces. There's no clear indication on what that dollar figure looks like. There's no indication on what the investment of into these spaces looks like. They have their in their annual reports. They talk about the Downey Windjack spaces. They have a nice picture of someone reading. Uh, the secret path, I think, and 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 things like that. But again, beyond that, kind of glossing over, they didn't get get they don't go into the details around. We are investing this much money into this much uh, spaces and and all these other things. It seems like it's more of just renovating existing spaces and then slapping the Downey Winjex sticker on it. We see that with some of the other banks as well. 
Um, there's there's some of the banks that talk about giving the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation a million dollars. Um, and one of them is a million dollars spread out over five years, which again is is a nice investment. It it's it's it has some uh, dollar figures behind it, but exactly what is that going to achieve, and how does that compare to the other? 68 billion dollars you're investing in Trans Mountain or Enbridge or Suncor or all these other things and how are you passing the buck to these companies in terms of engagement when really they wouldn't be carrying any of these projects forward if you didn't give them a bag full of cash to do what they will yeah I think uh, especially with that uh, Downey Windjack Foundation I was in a bar um and I had seen a little corner thing with their plaque and like a QR code or something on it. And, a, and, and people were showing it proudly as their, you know, contribution to reconciliation. And uh, yeah, I mean, awareness is good, but I just, I, I can't believe it's 2022 and this is where we're at with reconciliation in this country. And um, like back to your point of um, economic um, equity, like we're not anywhere having these conversations. I feel like that's why I was so excited about your report because this isn't a conversation that people are really having. And I, I can't really wrap my head around it. Um, so how the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business and um, you know maintain the, the status quo. And I, I bring that up because uh, Indian Oil and Gas is an organization here that was supposed to be for indigenous people if you read their talking points, right? but it has never been. And in fact, there is deep-seated racism and sexism happening in that organization too. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I know you're probably, you, you identified as going to law school. And as much as I wish it was true, a lot of our education costs are not free. <laughs> I have no uh, post-secondary education that was ever paid for by any, um, you know, grant or anything. No, granted, I graduated high school in 94. We didn't have access to the internet and, uh, you know, my little small town did not have any concept about Indian um, affairs. And at that time, I was still making long distance phone calls to Ottawa and to up north because we still didn't have like a $40 national um, telephone package. <laughs> so very different situation. Uh, when I went to um, SAIT, I was doing, you know, working in a printing shop um, full time and then biking over to night classes at state in order to get any post-secondary education. So to me, when we talk about equity, I mean, the fact is we, we don't even have opportunity to education like other folks. And um, all of this money of this investment, you know, a million dollars over five years. Just imagine how many Indigenous kids we could actually get to school. And and I mean, that doesn't make it easy. Don't get me wrong. You face with all that racism, sexism. So. Um, you know, just really, the, the equity is just not there in any capacity. But that said, new tools for consultation and consent. Um, I really love the solutions in the back part of this as well. Some some ideas, anyways, some some, some suggestions. Did you want to elaborate a little more on on that part, uh, part four? Yeah, I think. Um... The overall goal of the, the report is not only to highlight the issues, but also provide some, some kind of solutions to help people recognize that 
um, this notion of reconciliation of indigenous relations in Canada has been kind of relegated and regulated to a state of another transactional kind of occurrence where company A invests X amount of dollars to get the consent or partnership of the nation and then of consent from the nation's leadership, not even the membership, just the leadership. And then that is supposed to make the, the project move ahead, no questions asked. And then once the grassroots people get wind of this, then it creates, creates more conflict within our own communities and we end up fighting amongst ourselves while X company continues to do the work that they've been paid for, uh, have paid for, and then get funding for through loans and other things like that. So it's a it's a really an, an intention to have us re-examine this relationship to question whether or not this top 10 list approach is actually working and whether or not we should propose something different. And, and that's what kind of part four looks at is that there are meaningful examples out there. There are tangible examples that, that people have put forward that even Scotiabank's own shareholders have put forward um, at their, their annual meeting for consideration. And then that was immediately met with the bank's kind of counter of, well, look at all this other fantastic things we're doing with Indigenous communities. And then they go through their top 10 list of in, Indigenous workforce and we're recruiting more and we are we are uh, partnering and we're investing in these advisories and all this other stuff. But that doesn't solve the issue and answer the question around why are we still investing hundreds of billions of dollars in resource extraction, which we know negatively impact Indigenous people's lives. They have cumulative impacts now. Um, so it also asks and, and directs readers to look at these current court cases um, that are being deliberated, and the, the doors that have been opened in terms of these cases, that how we can re-examine our relationship, that third parties don't need to be let off the hook anymore, that uh, government regulation plays a huge role in allowing these violations to continue and that we need some stricter, stricter regulations. We can't just rely on the equator principles and things like that because they are still very loose, that there's no firm definition of free prior informed consent is what the equator principle states, but we know that Indigenous people, especially in Canada, have directed governments and institutions to what free prior informed consent looks like. Um, and if it takes doing all of this work to get to a positive end result, then organizations, resource companies, the banks should be investing in that relationship building as opposed to just steamrolling projects forward. And it also talks about um, having us talk to our leadership, talk to our own uh, our own community leaders, our own Indigenous leaders, our own Indigenous organizations, and really holding them accountable to ask them, what kind of relationships are you involved in? What kind of boards do you sit on? What kind of conversations are you having that are allowing these violations to continue? And whether or not we need to just have a, a frank conversation as Indigenous people around the harms that we, we may be committing to and providing for in our own communities. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you you brought that up. Uh, I think a lot of folks don't understand Indian Act dynamics, but then, uh, I, you know, I'm a second generation urban Indigenous person, so um, watching some of the nonprofits, uh, I'll give you um, the worst example that I can think of is uh, this one particular Indigenous organization that uses uh, scooped kids, women specifically, so young Indigenous girls, uses them, uses their art, doesn't give it back to them and uses it to get grants so that they can continue to get programs. 
and a lot of us in the community that know it, it's ran by a white woman uh, know that uh, this person is still, you know, indirectly perpetuating a lot of systemic racism. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, we still support the girls that have been wrongfully apprehended and trying to give them some type of, you know, direction and help and, and movement forward. But this organization has been around for decades and it continues to get um, funding. And uh, so to me, that's a great example of a local um, organization that perpetuates harm, but there's no mechanism of accountability there in any capacity. Yeah, I think I think that that's the case with a lot of these organizations and entities that have been created, um, especially around development and economic development and other things like that, where um, not only has it been sloughed off to non-Indigenous organizations and people to to start cashing in these checks and using any kind of resource at Indigenous community that includes people, human resources as well, mm -hmm. um, to further their own agenda, to further their own their own development and economic independence while Indigenous communities stay behind. Um, but it's also part of the larger conversation around um, now transferring the liability. And then once you see how poorly the system is being managed, Indigenous take it up. Indigenous people take it upon themselves to say, "Well, we'll build our own system, and then we'll take over responsibility, and we'll manage it better." Not realizing that with that comes the inherent liability with uh, that's being transferred. And if you don't do it properly, then you cannot hold anyone else accountable. You can't hold the government. You can't hold non-Indigenous people. You have to then look squarely at each other, and that will create even more conflict and and uh, dynamics within our own communities because. Um, to be frank, our leadership hasn't, our leadership models haven't progressed to the place where they need to be in order to challenge some of these systems. We still have communities electing people based upon popularity as opposed to uh, what they're going to do, what, what, their, what their track record looks like, what their experience is, whether or not they have any education, whether or not they've led successful projects or things like that. We, we've been relegated to just popularity contests in some instances, and that has only left the larger community behind and led to issues like we have today where uh, grassroots are coming into conflict with leadership around resource projects that they don't that they do not agree with. Yeah, that's fair. I am. Um, I've always felt like uh, because the Indian Act is so deep rooted, our leadership is set up to fail every time. And because our people will will kind of glam onto that, you know, we'll never get anywhere. And like you said, that internalized um, struggles that we have, I, it, it's all systemic. And to me, we need to talk about that systemic racism. And that's the, the power of this report is um, really trying to say, we'll talk about it without saying it, because <laughs> it is, it's systemic racism. And it was imposed through the Indian Act. And we have yet as a country to really make peace with that because it's in our constitution. Nobody wants to open the constitution. And yet we see the same problems over and over and over again. And yet I feel like uh, this is another report that's gonna, I'm gonna add to my list of things to prove that we've come to the table with some with solutions that were indigenous led that are being ignored. So I have a question for you about the uh, Yellowhead Institute and reports like this? And is there a mechanism that sends them to the government or how does that work? 
I think to a large degree, because it is based out of the Toronto Metropolitan University, it's not um, a government entity, it's not it's not an independent entity, it's very embedded within that institution. Um, we're, we're putting forward papers, briefs, position statements, it's very much a think tank designed to counter what other think tanks are out there, like the Fraser Institute and, and bodies like that, that push conservative agendas forward. Um, but what we need is is for Indigenous people, Indigenous leaders to really start to champion some of the work that we're doing. And we're not, I think, like we spoke about the systemic racism, the inherent adoption of Indian Act policies within our own communities makes it difficult for some leadership to, to kind of get behind some of these uh, initiatives and reports. Because um, once you start to look at yourself in a different light, then it leads to a little bit of hesitancy, maybe in a little bit of... Uh, condemnation for some of the, the things that are being proposed. So then you start to look for other alternatives. And I think that's what the Elliott Institute is doing well, is that we're we're highlighting and we're examining all of these issues that we know that it are uh, that exist. We know that there are disparities. We know that the system is is working towards one end goal and, and bolstering up certain aspects of this country. And that as Indigenous people, we need to take a fulsome examination of that. And that includes looking at each other and looking at ourselves and then hope um, propping up some of this information so we can change the status quo. So we can ask our leadership, why do you sit on this advisory group for RBC? What have you guys advised on that has made a difference? Um, because again, you're in, you may be putting yourself in conflict around Trans Mountain, other kind of projects. It's difficult to argue being against a project when your leadership are actively engaged in conversations around funding it and supporting it and, and things like that. So I think that's what the, the audience is doing. All of our stuff is available online. We are very present on, on Twitter and on Facebook. And um, we encourage people to, to tweet and read about our stuff. They're, they're sometimes easy reads. We have a lot of multimedia on YouTube. For cashback, we created a swath of tools including YouTube videos, YouTube clips, um, and, and that's in, encouraging and intended to reach out to different sectors of our community. Um, one of the shining examples is there's a fantastic YouTube video around the Indian Trust Fund that I encourage all, all Albertans, all Canadians, all Calgarians to, to kind of watch because it helps give you a sense of what the Indian Trust Fund looks like, how that relationship evolved over time, and how the disparity exists today and, and, and how we've gotten to where we are. Um, so at the Yellowhead, we're doing all of that stuff. Um, and it's it's very rewarding. I'm enjoying it. And uh, I think we're pushing conversations in, into new territories that we haven't really encountered before. Oh, that is like so beautiful. I have a, a small group of settlers doing some work here and we call ourselves a reconciliation action group. Um, mainly right now they've pushed for more, you know, school names changes, things like that. And of course, I wanted to tackle systemic racism. Um, one of our members, she's, she's quite old. She um, was a part of the original 1990 systemic racism report that was never fully implemented through the main Calgary education um, board that they have here. So like, it's not from a lack of trying to push these folks, but I think um, this particular Institute uh, really helps give 
background and understanding more to the economics of it. Um, well, everything, racism, systemic racism in general, I should say this particular stuff is more economic. And of course, that's incredibly important. We're going to move forward, um, especially when you consider, you know, intergenerational imposed poverty by the government. So like we need um, investment. So just as they invested in Indian residential schools, we need an investment into Indigenous education nationally to all. But then we also, if they were willing to impose poverty intergenerationally, they should be willing to institute um, a new economic way of being with us that's far more equitable so that we can quit this genocide. Because that's ultimately the poverty is what's causing it um, on top of the other, you know, policies that they've imposed through justice, education, and health. Um, you know, combine that with imposed poverty, we have no chance. So we gotta, we have to move this around. And I think that this is a great um, shout out to all of those who claim to care about economics. So for me, um, just me personally, I'm going to send this to my MLA and my MP. And as much as I hate giving free labor, educational labor to, um, you know, our, our elected officials, I have to do it even this weekend. Like the ones you think might be progressives still don't pay their elders. You know, um, I, we just got to move forward here. And I feel like, um, you know, my I've had it way much, way easier than my mom ever had it. My stepmom, um, she's a, an immigrant from Austria. So like I'm the first generation of a girl to have a driver's license, let alone go to another city and, and be able to, you know, start a life. So there's so much to really unpack with with how multi-generationally this has impacted our people. My granny, she went to um, Fort Providence Indian Residential School, Sacred Heart there. And um, my aunts and uncles were, they went to one in Yellowknife um, and aunt and uncle, I should say, have lots of aunts and uncles, but only um, two of them, the youngest went to one. So anyway, lots to unpack from this particular uh, report. I really appreciate you taking the time to unpack it here. Is there anything else you'd like to add about your report or the Institute or anything else you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I think um, we have a we have a wealth of information. There is a, a number of briefs on the El Hood Institute's website. There is, uh, of course, the interactive red papers, land back and cash back. I encourage people to, to explore the tools that are there. Most of very active on Twitter. I'm I'm at at Nihial Rob. Um, that's my Twitter handle. I tweet about a lot of things. Usually, um, I was involved in the the Safer for All kind of Edmonton uh, Community Safety Wellbeing Task Force. So I'm I'm tapped into kind of police accountability, increasing relationships within um, police, and and having better outcomes for Indigenous people in that realm. I'm also, um, I also work uh, at the federal level around, and we did recently the war naming initiative in Edmonton, and it has influenced some of my other work. So a lot of renaming stuff, um, but I have, I have a number of pieces out there. People can Google me and, and read some of the stuff I've written about. And uh, it's, it's usually indigenous focused. And I think it's, it's always important to continue this conversation going. Um, knowledge is power. People have to equip themselves with knowledge and information so that we can start to challenge uh, some of these stereotypes, some of these misnomers, and really encourage ourselves to, to do a better job of holding each other accountable so that we can change the outcomes in our communities. Agreed. I'm so grateful. Um, I just learned from Jesse Wente about um, narrative sovereignty. 
And uh, that's one of, I feel like the positive of this podcast is that we've, we're not beholden to some stakeholder to determine what I can and cannot say. So I'm grateful to have somebody like you make your native Calgarian debut on my podcast and tell us these things. Well, I will share as many links as I can in the uh, preamble in the hopes that people will click on them and uh, and listen to read read a lot of the reports that you do and the and the Yellowhead Institute try to retweet them as often as they post. So I'm really from the bottom of my heart grateful that you were able to come here today and tell us a bit about this. So thank you. Hi, hi. Thank you very much for the invite. Awesome. <clears throat> well, I hope everybody will pay attention to what the Yellowhead uh, Institute is doing and move, um, you know, maybe be moved to actually contact their MPs, MLAs, counselors, and try to start incorporating some of this information that we as Indigenous people have given. Um, Robert Houle obviously given many reports. Um, so Unreconciled by Jesse Wente went up last night. Our next uh, Chapters in Chat book club will focus on chapters five and six of the National Inquiry Report. That's September 12th at 6.30. Message me if you want to have the Zoom link to participate. I'm proud that this podcast has given solutions, cultural safety, uh, safety training and cultural first aid and all of them to create a safer space for Indigenous people of color, those with disabilities and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. Thank you to authors Chelsea Branch, Cheryl Ward, Alicia Fritkin of heretohelp.bc.ca about what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. Their work and those cultural action tools I've said over a hundred times in my podcast. So please support Indigenous work like that as part of your reconciliation work and settler understanding. I'm just lucky enough to highlight them and repeat them here. Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of, of violence Indigenous and marginalized uh, folks experience by the structure of racism imposed on these lands. If you go to racialequitytools.org, uh, what is internalized racism by Donna Bevins? There's so many resource files available. And uh, I think Robert and I spoke a bit about um, economic internalized racism that we're forced to face thanks to the Indian Act. Uh, do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by America's Friends Service Committee. Uh, Calgary, I'm calling you out. We've seen it on social media. This woman who uh, had some white guy punch her uh, window. And there were tons of people in that superstore parking lot that stood by and did absolutely nothing. So if you are that person, go to AFSC.org and go to the do's and don'ts of bystander intervention. If you see or experience oppression, report it to act to end racism.ca or text at 587-507-3838. That's 587-507-3838. Indigenous have been talking about these issues sharing our traumas and reports, commissions and public hearings just so it can be regularly disregarded, no more. Honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. They don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus. If they're cutting violence prevention programs, uh, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports on child welfare reform, 
violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Um, actually, there is a whole section on economic inclusion, and I really encourage people to read it. And if you, again, have missed some of it, you can see it on my podcast. Chapters one and two were together, three and four, and now we're doing five and six. Denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational justice and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms, politicians, and businesses. They don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism. They literally have zero business running. Should be understood by everyone, including sports clubs, community associations. You know, a great article out there is Truth Before Truth, how non-Indigenous Canadians become allies. If you literally Google it, you will find multiple articles on it. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today and watch talk, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And for missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can also call 844-413-6649. For non-Indigenous, there are distress center lines in your area, usually a functioning 211, or you can call 833-456-4566. 60 Scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta is ssisa.ca. If you see or experience racism, report it to Act to End Racism. Um, also, we're going to have a 60 Scoop uh, event here in October, so I'll be sharing that here shortly when we have our poster up and we have some more details to come. Uh, the following are two SLGBTQ plus um, crisis reports. So you can go to lifevoice.ca. Thank you, Trevor Project, for all of the uh, resources that you have. So the Trans Lifeline in Canada, 877-330. 6366 and for LGBTQ2 youth, uh, 1 466, sorry, 1 844 7386. Also, uh, we have an opioid crisis. Um, regularly, this government's failure is causing lives, costing tax taxpayers, and using really scarce resources in our overburdened ambulance and hospital systems, thanks to COVID-19 as well. Uh, so if you or someone you know is using substances, do not use alone. If you are using alone, there are two apps you can use. You can use the BRAVE or the DORS app. Uh, the National Overdose Dose Response Service is at 1-888-688-NORS. And I also encourage all Indigenous that are status in Alberta, you can get a Narcan a day. And I'm currently trying to fight my pharmacy over some of these issues, but at the end of the day, you have rights to it. You should be able to access it. And if you're not giving it away like candy to the folks who are homeless in your area, please consider donating them to a local bear clan or Indigenous organization that's doing that on the ground work. Um, in April alone, we had over 115 drug poisonings. Um, violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. This is self-care, how I take my power back. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, tone police, leadership shaming, gaslighting questions. So many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs, even if they know nothing about us nothing about colonialism, constant surveillance. Uh, I and many others share 
uh, info on microaggressions, so it's unacceptable to do them anymore. Learn about being trauma informed. Folks like me are dealing with internalized racism and gatekeepers. Um, you know, there's so much information out there about this now. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for me and many other Indigenous peoples, folks with disabilities, QT, uh, to my granny and my mom for what strength looks like through your example. I want my dad to for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. Through her, I'm a proud second generation Calgarian. Uh, thank you, Big Buffalo Rockman. That's my husband for producing, editing the show. And on top of that, he's my childhood friend, father of our child, and my support down the red road, witnessing decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, Thunderpipe Necklace Woman, we are blessed to learn from you daily. We are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person and push the society. I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or your questions. I also have a YouTube channel. You can go and subscribe or to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts. And of course, pin posts on social media. And lastly, I want to end by giving side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. Thank you so much, folks, for listening.